There's something really hypnotic about the forging process. The hot steel, this really cold, hard material that you can shape as you want. It's just, just a bit of magic, really. When you actually have finished the work, sharpen the knife and you just slice through some kind of tomato or whatever else. And the feeling that you get at this point is, is just wow. <laughs> Hi, this is Sarah with another episode of Materially Speaking where artists and artisans tell their stories through the materials they choose. Today, Mike Axon and I are in Paris meeting artisans. Finding workspace here has become increasingly difficult. Rents are high and there are restrictions on noise and dust. So we weren't surprised to find that Sylvain Mainhut, the first artisan we're meeting, has recently moved to an eastern suburb, 10 kilometers out of town. We catch the Arrière from Gare du Lyon and in 20 minutes are in nogent sur marne a short walk from the quiet station, we find Sylvain's Street, where pretty 1920s houses have family cars parked outside. In the garden, we meet his partner, Aurelie, a journalist, crouching in a flower bed, pruning roses. Our interview will include a visit to Sylvain's workshops, one dedicated to metalwork with milling machine, anvil and hammer, and forging equipment, and a second space for woodwork and knife assembly. We asked him to introduce himself. I'm Sylvain Maynard. I'm 42, actually. I'm French, based around Paris, in Nogent-sur-Marne. <laughs> and I've been a knife maker, a professional knife maker, for the past five years now. I had a first career in IT services, and I decided to move to craftsmanship a few years ago. I'm the father of two. My partner, Aurelie, who is a journalist, and I'm now working uh, from our house, which makes things very easy and allows us to kind of manage work-life balance as well, which was one of the main purposes of my of career. And obviously working from home, uh, which has been the case for the past six months now or nine months uh, since we moved into the house, gives a lot of flexibility. So the kids' school is at the end of the street, basically, like five minutes away. And if ever there's any urgency, I can just, you know, stop my work and go there. Did you have the seeds of craftsmanship in your childhood or in your family? Actually, not at all. Uh, <laughs> no, that was a weird thing. But, well, I come from the countryside in the north of France. My parents are from the generation where you used to do a lot of things yourself just because you just didn't necessarily have a lot of money. So they built a lot of stuff themselves in the house. So I've always seen my father do things with his hands, but not as a job, right? Just, you know, because it needed to be done. What happened is, obviously, I'm from a generation where we've been pushed a bit to intellectual kind of careers, if possible, which I did. And actually, when I announced to my father that I wanted to change career and go to craftsmanship, he went like, oh, not you, come on. <laughs> because, you know, all their life, they thought to go from a low kind of career, like in the factories and blah, 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 to the office kind of jobs to have better wages, etc. And I was telling him I was doing exactly the opposite. So it actually took him probably three to four years before really accepting my choice. And he's probably still a bit worried, but he, now he starts to see that 
first I'm happy with it, and second that I can kind of live out of it. To me, going to a manual kind of work is not a bad path to take, not at all. And you can be first, you can be very happy with it. And second, depending on the craft you choose, obviously, but you can live out of it very well as well. Sometimes better than classic office kind of jobs. I'm wondering why knives? It's not like one day you wake up and you say, okay, I'm just going to change career. I didn't even know how to build a knife before. I wasn't into knife collecting for a long time in my head. I said, I want to work with my hands sometimes. And it basically got more and more precise that I want to do some knives for some reason. I believe it came from my habit of cooking. I've always liked the feelings of cutting, slicing uh, when cooking. And we're both from families where you cook quite a bit. And the interest I have in using what I'm building. What does it mean to be a knife maker in France? How does that fit in? Well, that's kind of a very interesting question because most of the time we speak of France as uh, one of the big knife making countries. It is true somehow, but it is true on the folding knives side of things. So you will find the layols, the tiers, these kind of areas where there's a tradition of building folding knives and a bit of table cutlery. When it comes to kitchen knives, we're not particularly good, I believe. If you want to try and make some money out of you know, knife making, you need to go to the folding knives where you've got a bit like in art, some collectible kind of phenomenon with you know, the prices going with it, etc. Or you can try to go to a bit on the American market, like uh, Bowie knives, uh, you know, like hunting knives, outdoor stuff. But when it comes to kitchen knives, you're 100% on the utility market. Like there's no collection. What was your learning curve? Well, I guess like in all craftsmanship, it's long. When I decided to change career, I had this chance that I could get some finance for uh, a training under certain conditions. So I found a three-month intensive training uh, in the south of France uh, to learn the basics of forging and knife making. And then I came back here, went back to my previous job because that was the deal for a few months, which gave me the time to prepare the next steps. I said, for at least one year, I'm not going to sell anything because I, I want to concentrate on, you know, learning, building my own style as well. But first of all, learning, learning, learning. There's everything around. I mean, doing a nice looking knife is one thing. It takes a bit of time to practice and get the, the proper, you know, gesture, etc., etc. The first year was really like, you know, kind of secret work in my workshop doing a lot of knives, throwing them away, testing, etc., etc. And the second year was a bit of a... started to sell a few knives, but I wasn't 100% confident about my work. It's very difficult as well to get some feedbacks at some point. First, because the first persons you sell to are people you know. Uh, so it's not, you know, 100% honest, I'd say. And then because 
it's a small community knife making, especially for kitchen knives. So it's long as well to get to know other craftsmen and get some feedbacks and blah, blah, blah. So basically you're kind of progressing blind. Uh, you don't exactly know where you are in your learning curve, uh, what exactly you need to improve on, etc., etc. So it takes even more time. When I started, someone from another discipline told me, well, you know, craftsmanship is a five years learning curve before doing things well. That's where I am pretty much right now, and that's what I feel as well. Do you want to go to the workshop? All right. Ooh. So be careful at your head. So this is under the house. We've just come around the corner exactly. and gone underneath. It's pretty small. I used to have a much bigger workshop downtown in Paris, which was costing me a lot of money. <laughs> but at least here it's, you know, my place. So this is one part of a workshop. This is the metalworking side of things. So the forging area and everything around steel working, basically. This white cube here is basically the forge, right? Wow. Gas forge. So what does that involve? That involves just heating up the steel, hammering it, just shaping it before going to the next steps. So we can talk later about the various ways of making a knife. Forging is one of them. Also, it opens some, some ways that you cannot do with other methods. It's just one of the things that I really wanted to do when I went to knife making was forging as well. Just wanted to start from the raw material and shape it myself instead of just removing some steel with, you know, like um, abrasive belts and those kind of things. So you're pointing to the equipment on the right. So on the yeah. left, we've got the forging technique and on the right, we've got the shaving away from that. Exactly, which is what we call stock removal. We still need this kind of machine because at some point we need to remove some steel. But the idea behind the forge is just to shape the material as much as you can. And then we've got a, an hydraulic press, the orange thing over there, to, you know, just press big chunks of, of steel really. And this is uh, Duke of Adam rolling mill. Beautiful. Piece. Yeah, it's, it's from the 50s, it's French, and it's originally for jewelry. Being able to forge, how does that inform your knife-making craft? Well, forging is, is almost a philosophical kind of thing. It's not because you go to the stock removal techniques that you're doing worse knives, basically, or not because you're forging, you're doing better knives. It's just that you just shape the material yourself, the base material, the raw material. So it's, it's my idea of starting from scratch, more or less. So I'm just taking a bar of steel, a piece of wood, and then I'm ending up with a proper knife. And the other thing is, within the kitchen knife making, we do a lot of what we call sunmai constructions, which is basically a three layers kind of construction of the blade. And that can only be done with the forge. But why I do forge is really about doing it from A to Z. And that's why I came to craftsmanship, generally speaking, is doing things. So my idea is not to take any shortcut, basically. The forge is something as well, I think, kind of really primitive kind of thing, which is very interesting for me. It, it participates to the balance within the job as well, because you've got these boost phases in the work where you actually forge, it's hot, it's kind of physical, etc. And then you've got these, these other phases of work where it's really minimal work, very precise, into, you know, the wood, carving or finish, etc. And that creates a balance as well in the work. And that's that's something which interests me. When you don't do the forge, I think you lose a bit of this balance because you just work on the machine and it's not the same thing. There's something really hypnotic 
about the forging process. The hot steel, this really cold, hard material that you can shape as you want. It's just, just a bit of magic, really. <laughs> I was going to ask you about where the magic comes. A bit of everywhere, but it's a long process. The magic to me comes really when you actually have finished the work, sharpened the knife, and you just slice through some kind of tomato or whatever else. And the feeling that you get at this point is, is just wow. I mean, I love my job. Every day I'm just you know, waking up with a smile because I know I'm going to go to my workshop. Do you want to go to the other side of the workshop? I would love to, but I just wanted to ask you first, if I may, about the metals, because I can see a pile yeah. of metals there. I can see some wood there. So could yeah. we just talk about the materials and the, yeah, where sure. you get them from? Yeah, the kitchen knife making has that particularity that you're looking for the ultimate edge. Like cutting is the primary purpose of, of a kitchen knife. So we're looking at steels which are very high grade. So if you handle them properly, you can give them some very interesting characteristics in terms of edge, cutting, retention, etc., etc. So I'm getting my, my steel from Germany because I've got a guy there who is a well-known guy within the, the knife making world doing some knives himself. And also he's got this business where he actually creates some steels. There's a lot of steels which are really interesting for cooking high carbon grade, etc., etc. When it comes to wood, basically, so I've got some wood stock downstairs. I'm not using wood coming from friends or just local trees, etc. for two reasons. First, it's not my job to actually cut them, dry them, etc. I don't have the equipment, I don't have the skill. And then you need to dry them for years and years, which I cannot do here, I don't have the space. And the thing as well is that my customers tend to ask for exotic woods. So, which is a big area of thinking in my job as well. I'm very much environment aware, and that's one of the things that create a lot of thinking as how can we improve that? I would like to be a bit better on the environment side of things. Here is the former, how do you call that, coal room. And when we got into the house, there was still a bit of coal actually inside it. So I cleaned everything. And here's my, my room where I do the heat treating, which mm -hmm. is a big part of the knife making to give technical characteristics and the sharpening. So all the stones that you see there are Japanese whetstones to sharpen the knives. They're wow. beautiful colors. What is a whetstone made of? Well, most of them are synthetic, mm -hmm. <laughs> factory made, and they're made out of usually ceramic or corindon but well rather ceramic and it's bounded with resin or cement some kind of cement i've got a few which are diamond based and i've got one natural whetstone which comes from basically a, a career in japan for fine finishing you mentioned japan and i just wondered yeah. is there an influence from japan why i've got a japanese influence in the shapes of the knives that i do is just because i find they're much easier to use uh, they're much more efficient on the cooking table basically than the, the french traditional shapes the two countries i guess are japan and germany so germany a bit of france as well as i said earlier for some brands around cooking germany is a big uh, provider of kitchen knives and in japan it comes down to this very japanese cultural Thing, which is perfection so we've got one task one knife one knife one task you're not going to take a uzuba which is made to to slice uh, vegetables only 
to cut your meat that just doesn't exist. And I like this way of seeing things. I mean, it cannot apply to everybody, to all my customers, because some of them they just want a you know, versatile, like easy to use knife for their daily cooking. But when you go to chefs, etc., and you have the opportunity to build such specialty knives, it's just like, wow, that's, that's why I'm doing this job really. I'm interested in how this work has possibly opened you up to the world of cuisine and restaurants. That's very interesting because they're asking for more technical knives. Usually they're a bit less interested in aesthetic, much more about technical qualities. They're not telling you, I want to do everything with it. They're just going to tell you, well, I want to cut raw fish only, for instance, or I'm just going to cut vegetables. And against everything that we could think of, especially in France, those guys most of the time have dull knives. <laughs> so there's a lot to do. Many, many, many professionals don't know how to sharpen their knives. They don't necessarily know what a good knife is. Some of them are not using the right knives for the right thing, etc. So there's a lot of learning for them as well and education from me to them to explain them how they can benefit from having better knife. Just even, you know, standard knife, but at least maintain it properly, etc., etc. So that's not really what I expected, but that's very interesting because that gives opportunity to share my skills, my views. I'm doing some courses in some uh, food schools to uh, learn them to, you know, the basics of sharpening and how to choose a knife. Do you ever do bespoke knives? About 90% of my work, I'm doing bespoke. In my way of seeing my job, I want to talk with the customer. I'm, basically, I'm doing kind of high-end knives, and that means as well giving the customers the possibility to choose their materials, the wood, etc., etc. But what I need as well from a technical perspective is know how they're going to use it. And I'm not going to do the same knife, even if we agree on the shape, a size, etc., I'm not going to do the same knife, choose the same steel, give the same technical characteristics to someone who wants an everyday knife for their cooking at home and they don't sharpen it, or to a chef or professional who will sharpen it every three days, who will use it only for one particular task, etc. I will adjust the technical side of things depending on how the knife will be used. Usually when I do knives, I'm building batches of five to six knives just for a question of production process. And I'm doing one of them is on stock so that some people who like my work and don't want to go to an order, they can eventually fall in love with it and buy it. The other thing as well is that if you don't do bespoke, if you only sell your knives on stock, you never talk to anybody because that's a really very lonely work. So if I'm only, you know, just push my knives on a selling website, I'm just, you know, alone in my basement. So it doesn't, and doesn't make sense for me. These are beautiful. Can you talk us through them? Yeah. So here we've got a small paring knife, like the basic in the kitchen. So like nine, 10 centimeters to do a bit of everything like peeling, removing the head of garlic, those kind of things. The wood, which is one wood that I love is cocoa. Wood. So it comes from Africa, and we come back to the environment kind of things that we mentioned earlier. This would be the other hand of it. It's a, what we call a gyuto in the Japanese world. So it's basically the equivalent of the chef knife in the Western Europe side of things, but it's much taller. It's a 20 plus centimeters from an everyday cooking perspective. You can do pretty much everything with it. This one is what we call a petty middle size, about 14 centimeters, so it goes in the middle. And the wood used here is bog oak, 
don't know if you heard about it. So actually, this comes from the UK. Bog oak is oh, it's my favorite wood. Bog oak is an oak which fell into a bog, <laughs> like a couple of thousand years ago. It got into the the ground basically. So it started. How do you call that? Fossilizing. But obviously, it's not at the end of it. So we say it's semi-fossilized. Is that yes. the correct word? The time it spent within the ground gave this a lot of uh, minerals going into the wood, especially carbon, which gives it this black color. It's the fiber of the standard oak, basically, except that it's black or brown, depending on the origin and the age. And this one is dated 5,000 years. And it comes from not the other side of the world. Because I work quite a lot with it, I have uh, one supplier especially for that. And it comes from the UK in the Kent region. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So they actually find the bog oak themselves, they cut it, they dry it, and they sell it. Do you have a signature that defines you in your knife making? We have a maker's mark, like for the jewels. So it's this thing here. So that you need to read it that way. And I chose it. So the maker's mark is very something uh, kind of personal. And this one is an old alchemical sign, which means the purification by the fire. And the maker's mark comes from there. Is there anything about your knives that we could recognize that it's yours? One of the things that I'm doing, which is kind of recognizable, although I'm not the only one doing it, is those faceting kind of things on the handles. And this cut at the back of the handle as well, at a specific angle, which I'm doing on all my knives. I just did it because I found it nice and it was a good way of finishing the handle. Someone told me one day, well, I recognize your knife because of that. Some people will recognize my touch in the knives because you are a person with a specific sense of aesthetic, etc. You have the experience of having done something well before. I guess when you're going to a second career, especially when you're going to sacrifices like the financial side of things, I just cut my wages by five or six when I changed career. If it was a first career, probably I would have a different vision and maybe I would not realize as much the chance that I have to be happy in my job, to wake up on the morning with a big smile, etc., etc. So I think the passion comes from the craft itself, but also from my own path, really, and everything that I left when I changed career, everything that I embraced, basically. I don't need much to leave. I don't need fancy clothes. I don't need to go in fancy restaurants, etc., etc. So just doing what I do on a day-to-day basis, being close to my family, having some time with my kids. I mean, it's, it's priceless. So. It was half term and the kids were with their grandparents, which had given Sylvain and Aurélie the chance to pop into Paris the previous night to catch foreign film. As we were leaving, they offered to share their lunch with us and we enjoyed the freshest of eggs, potatoes and a salad foraged from their new garden. Back in Paris, we went to a farm-to-table restaurant which Sylvain had recommended where Mike's steak knife bought Sylvain's Maker's Mark. So thanks to Sylvain Mainhut. You can discover more about him on his website, sylvain-m.fr, or find him on Instagram at sylvain.m.coutelier. And thanks to you for listening. As with all episodes, you can find photographs of the work discussed on our website, materiallyspeaking.com, or on our new Instagram account, at materiallyspeakingpodcast.com. 
If you're enjoying Materially Speaking, subscribe to our newsletter on our website and we'll let you know when the next episode goes live. Thank you.